All right. <laughs> From that, I go to this. Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was steering, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, the hopes, in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. The children were snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's cap nap. When out on the lawn there rose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, torn open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday of objects below. When what to my wonder, wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and a tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. <coughs> that poem goes on for several more stanzas, as you probably know. Few of us don't recognize the words, at least of those initial verses. I will confess that I appreciate the imagery, the vivid pictures that the words conjure up there. But that poem is a theological disaster. When it was published in 1823, few could have imagined that this particular poem would impact how we would celebrate Christmas even today. Prior to that, the celebration of Christmas really has an obscure history as several of the early church fathers really sought to dissuade it, wanting to avoid any celebration of anything that might appear pagan, such as birthdays, including the birth of Christ. The first time that that date, December 25th, appears or is mentioned is in the 3rd century writings of Sextus Julius Africanus. But it's not even until a century later, in the 4th century, when we actually find evidence of the celebration of Christmas. And then long after that tradition had been established, a visit from St. Nick, which is the title of that poem that I just started reading, it transformed that celebration. What it did is it combined the day of St. Nicholas Day, December 6th, with the celebration of Christmas from December 25th to give us our modern day Santa Claus. What well, some may not realize is that St. Nicholas was actually a real person. He was a theologian. He attended the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. But now what we have is a fictionalized version of St. Nicholas, who has actually replaced both St. Nicholas and Jesus Christ. With that poem, two historical figures have been replaced and erased. Working on that new description from that poem, in 1863, Thomas H. Nast was the very first one to draw a picture of Santa Claus as that jovial, bearded figure that we see. But then it was in the 1930s when Coca-Cola adopted him and dressed him up in a red suit for their advertising campaigns. And with their influence, even in the 1930s, that became the figure we now see today. And with that, Christmas has been forever altered in the minds of many. David Garland suggests that it's very easy to take the figure of a baby, like we have of Christ being born, and alter that to a story that is really something more conducive to whatever agenda we may have. But the story of Christ's birth, as it is written by God, 
is far greater than any story ever written by man because it celebrates God's promises rather than man's prestige and an exaltation of the glory of God by his gift to his people. That is what we get at Christmas. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2. And we come to the very Christmas story, and I want to bring to you a message I've titled, Arrival of a Savior. This time, the Psalm of Angels. Thus far, Luke has given us three songs that I've chosen to title Psalms instead. We have the Psalm of Mary, the Psalm of Zechariah, and now we have the Psalm of Angels. And so I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was his with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them. In the end, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on the earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing as has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known that saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as had been told to them. may be seated. Luke begins in verse 2 here, verse 1 of chapter 2, with writing of these days, meaning those days in which John the Baptist was born, as he had just finished recounting in the previous chapter and we looked upon last week. These days are days in which Rome rules the region. And at the helm of Rome's rule is Caesar Augustus, mentioned in verse 1 of our text. Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius to Attia, who was daughter of Julia Minor. And Julia was Julius Caesar's sister. 
making him the great nephew of Julius Caesar. So you have Julius Caesar, his sister, Julia Minor, who had a daughter, Attia, and Attia had then Gaius Octavius, who is now Caesar Augustus. Having no heir for the throne, Julius ad adopted Octavian, as he was known. And when Julius died, then Octavian ruled, but he did not rule alone. He ruled with two others, Marcus Lepidius and Mark Antony. Lepidus made a miscalculation in allies and fell early on. Mark Anthony's relationship with Cleopatra, which is long recounted, has distracted him from his duties. And so when Octavian invades, he and Cleopatra commit suicide. That leaves Octavius as the only person to rule the area, the only remaining leader. This ended that ongoing civil war that was taking place. And the Senate officially confirmed Octavius as emperor in 27 BC, bestowing on him the title Augustus, or Majestic. And so he becomes Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome. And he reigned until AD 14 when he died. Ruling Israel from Rome is very difficult. And so Caesar Augustus looks for a designate, and this Designate, of course, we know is Herod the Great, the very one who would later order the death and murder of all children under two years old in order to preserve his power. But Luke 2.2 also mentions the name Quirinius, the governor of Syria. This poses a problem because officially Quirinius was appointed governor or legate, as the Senate would call it, only from A.D. 6 to 7, after Herod's son Archelaus was deposed. And indeed, in A.D. 6, a census did take place at that time. But 6 A.D. is really too late for the birth of Christ. So let me explain. We have Herod the, Herod the Great. We have Julius Caesar in power, and then Octavian takes control. But ruling in the area of this region is Herod the Great. Herod dies in 4 BC. And then we have Quirinius, who didn't actually rule as governor until 6 AD. So you have Herod the Great who dies in 4 BC. You have Quirinius in 6 AD. That's a 10-year span. And in this time somewhere, Christ has been born and there was a census called. We know that if Herod ordered the killing of children under two, then Christ was born under Herod, meaning somewhere around 6 to 4 BC. So when we talk about Quirinius as governor of Syria, the timeline doesn't match. But that word for governor has to be understood in a general sense. Though he was only officially governor of Syria from 6 to 7 AD, he actually had power before that. And in 12 BC, when Herod is still alive, Quirinius is appointed council. And so in doing this, even with Herod in power, it shows that Israel is underneath the authority of Roman rule. It's true, there's no record of a census around 6 to 8 AD, BC. But if you look from AD 6 to AD 230, we have a record of 16 different censuses showing this to be a regular occurrence. 
And so based on just that fact alone, it's very feasible that there was probably one 6 to 8 BC every 14 years, and that would have been every 14 years. Octavian himself is known as a great administrator. He had organizational gifts that people enjoyed and noted. And so a census from Octavian is not out of line. Interestingly, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, shunned the practice of emperor worship, but he did so only because he saw the effect that it had on his uncle's relationship with the people and how they viewed Julius Caesar. So he declined emperor worship, but he did accept the title Pontifex Maximus, meaning the highest of all priests, which still shows that he shunned the God of the Bible. And yet, despite not following that one true God, unbeknownst to him, Caesar Augustus becomes an agent of God. God uses him, and so with his census decree, he fulfills the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, when Micah says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With rod they strike the, ju- the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from the old, from ancient days. And so with that decree, Joseph and Mary obviously set off, and we have born a Savior who fulfills that prophecy in Bethlehem. It's a reminder that no matter what it appears, God is always at work, even using officials and rulers to bring his plan to fruition. Therefore, he is reliable. To use the words of J.C. Ryle, A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do, the praise and glory of God. He should regard every king and potentate, an Augustus, a Darius, a Cyrus, as a creature who with all his power can do nothing but what God allows and nothing which is not carrying out God's will. And when the rulers of this world set themselves against the Lord, he should take comfort in the words of Solomon, there be higher than they. Because of the decree, Joseph and Mary set off to Bethlehem, the city of David, proving once again, even more, Jesus' lineage and right to the throne. Why Mary goes is really uncertain. Maybe it was because the time of birth was so near. Maybe it's to preserve her from embarrassment and shame from being an unwed mother. We really don't know. The reality is she didn't need to go, but she does. Making this her third lengthy major trip while being pregnant. First, she travels 70 to 80 miles to go visit Elizabeth. And then, three months later, she returns and makes that journey in reverse. And now she travels nearly 90 miles for the census. Each time she is more advanced in her state of pregnancy. And now with the time drawn near, she's about to give birth. But the text tells us there's no room at the inn. An inn could have been a public shelter. It was certain it was not a commercial inn, though, as we would think of a modern-day hotel. Bethlehem, first off, is just not large enough for a commercial inn. 
but Luke uses a different word for commercial inn. And later on in his gospel, in chapter 10, he actually uses that word to refer to something like a hotel. So the word inn here is not likely a commercial building. Actually, the word for inn in this text is, is the word that's used when Jesus and his disciples seek a room for the Last Supper, as in like a guest room. So when it says no room at the end, it's probably like there's no guest room in a person's home. That's what Mary and Joseph find instead is a stable. A stable could have been a cave, which is something we'll talk about later. More likely, the stable, though, was a somebody's home. Because in their home, next to their living area, what they had was an area set up for the animals. And then at night, in the colder months, animals were brought inside to an area that was set on the lower levels of the home with their feeding troughs and a place for the animals to sleep. Remember that the reason that they are in Bethlehem is because Joseph is from Bethlehem. And so for the census, he has to return there. That's why he comes there to register for the census. That means if he's from there, he has family there. And so identifying himself simply as Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Mathen, and so on, probably would have opened doors to him as people said, oh yes, I know who you are, or at least know about you. And family would have opened the door. But with the census, remember, there's more people there, including their family, especially because more of their family is going to have to return and so likely the guest rooms are taken up by family members of higher authority or higher levels or higher ranking. That leaves only the stable for Mary and Joseph. And that's where we find them. That's where the shepherds find them. It was there, verse 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This all happens according to God's plan and timing. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, it says in Galatians 4.4. This is a great event, a grand event. It's initiating God's plan of salvation for the people. And it commences with the birth of Christ, the incarnation of God in flesh to dwell among his people. Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Despite the nature of Christ's birth, it happens in the most humble of circumstances. He's not placed in a bassinet, but in a feeding trough. The creator of the earth arrives, and he's not born in a palace, he's born in a stable. And then placed in that feeding trough, we call it a manger, but we could hardly sing away in a feeding trough. <laughs> but that's what it is. Despite all of that, the head of Jesus rests at the very spot where animals feed. It's just as Isaiah has said, chapter 1, verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. By pointing us first to Caesar Augustus in verse 1, with his rule and with his authority to call a census as emperor, Luke starts this contrast with Christ, who at this moment seems to have no authority whatsoever. The one is known, the other is unknown. 
and though one is born into luxury, the other one is born into humility. And yet, though Caesar Augustus may think he rules the world at the time before him, is the creator of the world. And his rank, his authority, and his power all outstrip Caesar Augustus. Even the announcement demonstrates this. In this era of Roman rule, the term good news that the angels say they bring is a specific announcement meant to proclaim the birth of an heir or the, or the birth of or somebody coming to age and then his ascension to the throne. So the announcement here is a formal way of announcing a, a, the next dynasty. There's even an inscription that describes a particular birthday of Caesar Augustus that ascribes his birthday with the coming of the Savior, saying that Caesar Augustus is that Savior. But in verse 9, we have the announcement, the angels appear to announce the true Savior. For the third time in Luke, an angelic announcement is made. But there's something different with this announcement. The previous announcements, where one was made to Zechariah, the other to Mary, they were made to family. They were made to insiders. But this announcement was given to outsiders. It was given to the shepherds. And so the angel appears to the shepherds and says, verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. who will You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the angels proclaim, I bring you good news. I bring you news. And then they describe that news both as good and that it will bring great joy to the people. It's good news because it brings God's goodness to the world. In a place that is dominated by sin and evil by Satan, God's goodness shines forth by conquering both sin and Satan. Through Christ, Satan's perceived grip is broken, and people no longer live in bondage to it. But for those submitting to Christ's lordship, they no longer need to walk in sinfulness, but are liberated to walk in holiness. And that display of God's goodness should bring forth great joy. The announcement of Jesus' birth brings good news and great joy because what it does is it unleashes God's grace of God, the grace of God to go, go through Christ in salvation. And so with this announcement, the angel sets forth a series of events shown through four different groups of people. And those people respond to Christ. And with each response, we get a different look at different ways to worship Christ. And so I want you to note first this morning the response of the angels. The response of the angels. After the initial angel declares the birth of Christ, then a host of angels, a multitude from heaven, appear and respond in song. Verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. At that proclamation of the birth of a Savior, those angels suddenly appear in the glory of God. 
Though few on earth know who the Messiah has arrived and who he is, those in heaven know. And the angels know, and they they respond appropriately by ascribing majesty and praise to God. They do exactly what Isaiah says to do in 49.13. Sing for you, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. They're a picture of what the psalmist means when he says, Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all that fills it. The heavens do the only thing that is appropriate to do in the circumstances like this, is to proclaim the glory and majesty of God by singing his praises. They ascribe to the Lord glory. But notice that it's not just any glory that their song speaks of here. It's the highest glory of all. Glory in excelsis Deo. They give to him a glory that nobody but God is entitled to. He alone is worthy of such praise because through Christ's placement on earth, again, God's grace is on display. In light of the fact that later on Christ will be despised and he will be rejected, that he will not be recognized as God's gift of grace and peace, The praise of the angels is fitting here because at least we can see him praised in this moment on earth. This is a third song of praise given to us in the first chapters of Luke. But this is unique. While the psalm of Mary and the psalm of Zechariah are sung from earth towards heaven, the psalm of angels is sung from heaven towards earth. The angels are proclaiming to earth the events that are taking place. Events that are praiseworthy because those who are found worthy, they will be recipients of peace from God and peace with God. This is one of the very few times you will ever hear me say that we should be more angelic, that we should act like angels. But in this instance, with the recognition of what God has given in Christ, we should strive to be like-minded with the angels. Looking upon the newborn Christ as an opportunity for redemption and responding with songs of praise issuing from the heart because it is in Christ we see God's greatest display of grace and mercy. The fact that the angels show up to the shepherds is surprising. By all accounts, shepherds are the lowest of society. Their work made them unclean, physically and spiritually. They worked seven days a week, meaning they couldn't participate in the events of the temple or the events of the synagogue. They were known as thieves and as liars. But God chooses them first to be the ones that receive the announcement of Christ's rival. There's an often overlooked prophecy when Jeremiah says, In the cities of the hill country, the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, and in the land of Benjamin, The places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. In those days and at the time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. 
Notice what was said. Not just that David would never lack a man on the throne, that there would always be an heir, a branch that springs up, but it begins by noting that God would send the Messiah when the shepherds were tending to their flocks. And now we have that fulfilled here in Luke, when the angels appear to the shepherds. And when the shepherds respond, verses 15 and 17 of our text, they do this. So when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And so from this, I want you to know, second, the response of shepherds. The response of the shepherds. And they really respond in two ways. First, they searched. The angel told them what they would find. And when the angels depart, so do the shepherds. But they depart to begin their search for Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a feeding trough. And what do they find? Jesus, just as the angel said, wrapped in swaddling cloths. It's interesting because their response to search is the exact opposite of what you see of Herod's religious men in John. When Herod was worried about his throne, he calls forth that after the wise men had visited and said, you know, Messiah has been born, he calls together his wise men and his religious leaders and brings them together and says, Where's this supposed to happen? And those wise men, knowing exactly what the religious texts say, well, it's supposed to happen in Bethlehem on this time at this way. But if you go to that text, those wise men never respond. Not the wise men, but the religious scribes and people. They don't respond. They don't search at all. They, knowing the religious text and the prophecies of God, are the ones who should be responding most of all. And they don't. But upon hearing the angels, the shepherds search. And then upon seeing him, seeing Christ, just as the shepherds, as angel said, the shepherds then begin to share it with others. They tell all those that are around them about what has happened. In this way, the shepherds become the first evangelist. They're sharing God's work with those who would hear. And the shepherds, upon hearing about Christ, search for him. And they share him with others. The story of the shepherds is another one that should resonate deep with us. Whether believer or unbeliever, when we hear of Christ, our first wise response would be to go and investigate, to search after him. Because you know what happens when you genuinely seek after Christ? Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. After searching for Christ, they found their faith to be confirmed and deepened, and it results then again in praise. A genuine search for Christ will reveal the genuineness of Christ, strengthening a person's faith. The shepherd's response was to search for Christ, and upon finding their faith deepened and confirmed, they go share with others. It's fascinating that God chooses them to spread this good news. As I said earlier, they were known as liars and thieves. 
they were so much considered liars that their testimony in court wasn't admissible. They weren't even considered reliable witnesses in court. And yet God uses them as witnesses for the most significant event in history. They're the first to give testimony to what God has done. And Luke writes in verse 18 of those that heard, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So I want you to note third here, the response of the people. The response of the people. Throughout the gospel of Luke, at least in the first few chapters, the people have responded in wonder and in amazement at what God has done. First, they, want, they respond in wonder at Zechariah's delay when he's in the temple. And then in chapter 1, verse 63, they wonder again. This time, it's when he's naming the child and confirming what Elizabeth wants to name the child as John. And verse 63 says, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, as we talked about last week. They'll respond in wonder again a few verses later in chapter 2 that we'll see next week. But that's the point. The work of God produces amazement, and so it should be expected that people respond in wonder. There is no end to the works of God, and so there is no end to our marvel at the works of God. But amazement isn't enough. Just because people were amazed at what God has done does not mean that they actively put their faith in what God has done. Again, the wise men would be, or the, the religious men that Herod summons to his palace would be a good example. They didn't search because they failed to be amazed at what God had done. And so should, there should be this process, amazed and marvel at God's work, causing me then to seek after God. Sadly, there are people who will be on the receiving end of God's majestic work and may even marvel at what God has done and still go their own way, never surrendering themselves to the most critical work of forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration given through Christ. Upon hearing of God's work, those people here in our text fail to take the steps the shepherds took, which is to search after Christ and have it confirmed after them, even though they're there. The response of the people is what we should have, wonderment of what Lord has done. But that's not enough. It should be accompanied by a heart that is inclined towards the Lord as a result. God's work produces a softened heart. The response of the people was to be stunned at God's work but not necessarily saved by God's work. And then we have Mary. I want you to know finally her response, the response of Mary. Unlike the people who were amazed and thought nothing more of what had happened, Luke contrasts Mary's response with theirs. And he says in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary is much more like the people who marveled at Zechariah in verses 66 in the previous chapter. We spoke of that last week, but of them, Luke said this, And all who heard, heard what Zechariah had said, all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So remember what had happened. John the Baptist is born. And they see God's at work there because Zachariah's tongue is loosed after being mute and deaf for several months throughout the pregnancy. 
people recognized God was at work, and yet they still lacked full understanding, as evidenced by asking, what then will this child be? But despite not understanding, the people stored those events in their heart, trusting that one day it would become clear. That's what we see with Mary here. Aside from the shepherds, the only other people here that have been visited by angels has been Mary. She knows God is at work. But that concept of pondering suggests she doesn't actually understand all the events, which is not uncommon. Most of us don't understand what God is doing in the moment. But even still, she knows God is faithful. And so she keeps those events at her heart. Who can understand the depths of God, Job asks. Or Isaiah says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are beyond comprehension and expectation that we should, we won't have complete understanding. But to expect that we would have complete understanding is an unreasonable expectation. But we don't need understanding. What we need is faith. God's already proven himself faithful, and so we just need to trust that all of that is going to work out. With my children, I don't always reveal everything that is going on. I just ask them to follow me, to trust what I'm doing, and just obey. That's the same thing. Every person has their own situations, their own circumstances. Some may be easier than others. We may even cry out, why, Lord, or, or what am I supposed to do, Lord? Even still, like Mary, we can guard these events in our hearts. Drawing nearer to the Lord in that moment and trusting what he is doing. And expect that someday what he is doing will be made clear. Because of who he is, the Lord Jesus Christ is deserving of a response from his people. It's impossible to meet Christ and remain indifferent. In verse 11, the angels refer to him as Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We see the use of three distinct titles, Savior, Christ, Lord. Those three titles are used nowhere else together in all of Scripture. You might get Christ the Savior, or Christ the Lord, or Lord and Savior, but you don't get all three. Savior speaks to what he will do. Usually in the Greek culture, the word was reserved for people who would save other people, meaning doctors or rulers. Jesus will save people as well, delivering them from their enemies of sin and Satan. His title of Christ speaks to his role as Messiah, the one who God has promised would deliver the people. And the title Lord speaks to his sovereign rule. Not only do these titles speak of his worthiness of worship, but they also point to his ability to bring peace. When the angels respond, they sing glory to God in the highest and on the earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is born in the initial phases of an era that is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. A 200-year period of time of peace in that region that actually begins with Caesar Augustus in 27 BC. But what was the cost of that peace? It included the oppression of the poor so they wouldn't rise up in mutiny. It included the strength of their military might, and it included the forced subjection of nations to Rome. So was it really peace? The cost of peace was fear, so that outwardly there was peace by the absence of conflict 
it looked like it. But inwardly, there was still turmoil. From within the empire, there were still people that would rebel. There were still people who disagreed. You know how you tell a child to sit down and the child may say, well, I'm, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside? People may have submitted here, but it was out of fear, not willful obedience. Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher who actually lived at the same time as Luke, the author of the gospel, he captures that idea well, and he, and he says, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which many earns more than even for outward peace. This child, this Christ, he's the one that the angels declare are going to bring that true peace because he deals from the inward to the outward. In Christ, there is untainted justice, there is unmerited mercy, and there is undiluted forgiveness. Only Christ can provide true peace because he does so in his holiness. In this way, J.C. Ryle says, Christ will glorify God. He says, now is come the highest degree of glory to God. By the appearing of a son, Jesus Christ, in the world, he, by his life and death on the cross, will glorify God's attributes, justice, holiness, mercy, wisdom, as they were never glorified before. True peace is not the absence of conflict. True peace is the presence of Christ. In his capacity as Savior, Christ, and Lord, Jesus can do something that no man can do, something that takes the work of an infinite God-man. As a result, we respond to Christ in true, genuine worship that is in spirit and truth, as John would say. People have a way of misappropriating worship, worshiping the wrong thing. In Bethlehem, there exists a church. It was built sometime around 325 or 326 under the instruction of Constantine. Eventually, at one point, it was impacted by a fire. And Emperor Justinian, somewhere around the 6th century, while retaining the original form and building, had it even rebuilt even more. And then he added a porch and a narthex area. Historically, that church is significant. It's actually an interesting place to consider in church history. But it was built for a specific reason. Following the lines of people, you'll eventually arrive to this. It's a shrine. And if you notice, there's a star on the floor. That star, actually interesting, in 1847, was stolen by a bunch of Greek monks because they were in conflict with the Catholics. So this one's been replaced. If you notice, if you look at that star, there appears to be a hole. Remember earlier when I told you that a stable could refer to a room in a home, or it could refer to a cave, which could have protected animals from the elements as well. So if you look at that star, there's a hole in the middle, and what that hole does is looks down into a cave that someone said, this is where Christ was born. I don't think God's revealed where Christ is actually born. And the reason I don't think he would do that is because we do things like this. If you follow that long up longing of people, what you'll find is people worshiping. But what they're worshiping is not Christ. They're worshiping the spot on the floor of a fourth century church. 
people have a tendency to worship anything but Christ. It's just as G.K. Chesterton has said, when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing. We worship anything. The response as we see at Christ's birth display for us genuine worship so that God is at work in our lives. Even when we don't understand it and when things are difficult, we should be able to do what they did. We should be able to marvel at what he's doing like the people. But don't stop there. Like the shepherds, we should seek after him, drawing nearer to him, causing us to be like the angels who sing and worship his praises. And finally, like Mary, then we ponder over the work of God and we treasure them in our hearts. And so let us worship the risen Christ, the Christ who was born, the Christ who will die, and the Christ who will rise for the salvation of the sins of those who would believe in him. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and it is in the upcoming days, especially today and tomorrow, by which we will remember especially the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Father, may the significance of that event not grow dim in our lives. May it be something that we exalt. May it be something that we, we see lived out in our lives, Lord, by drawing out to you, by calling out to you through your Son, Christ, knowing that it is by his blood that our sins have been washed, Lord. Father, may that cause us to worship you more, recognizing just exactly what you have done, to recognize the significance of that event, that apart from this birth and eventually the death, burial, and resurrection, our life and eternity would be separated from you, Lord. But by it, we can now be freed from sinfulness and enslaved to holiness, Lord. And so, Father, may we remember the significance of that gift today, remembering the liberation it brings to live life for you, Lord. It is in your holy and precious name we pray.